going to kick you out. That's the point he made. Uh, it's on social media. It's on record. And I thought, what a, we as Christians should learn from that. Some people are in and some people are out in terms of the gospel. But as Jesus tells the parable of the, the wedding feast, everybody came in and if they didn't have a wedding gown, they would be provided with one so that when that man, if you remember the story, is found to be in the wedding feast, improperly clothed, not wearing the correct clothing, he was thrown out. And at face value, we think, oh, that's, that's, that's very horrible, that's very judgmental, that's very unwork, you know. But the point is, in terms of the custom of the day, you would be provided with the pr proper clothing if you didn't have it. I've, I've been once in a while, uh, by some sheer mistake, uh, to these fancy gentlemen's sort of, you know, um, I must be careful, not those kind of gentlemen's clubs. Um, <laughs> the other ones, where you have to wear a suit and tie, you know. And if you don't arrive with a suit and tie, they will provide one for you. I remember one gentleman in our, in our group, one day he didn't come properly tied, and so they provided him. Uh, that to wear. That's the message of the gospel. We don't come in our own merit. We don't, we don't have anything that we can bring to Jesus. He requires holiness and righteousness. He requires sacrificial love. He requires all that we are and all that we have in response to his great love. But he clothes us. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And so it's evident to all of us, it should be, that the righteousness that we seek to emulate is that of Christ, not our own. Does that make sense? He who knew no sin, and this is the message of the table of communion, he who, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as we continue to study Scripture, we come to the end of chapter 13 of the book of Acts, and we see a clear message cutting through a whole lot of noise. It's like it's a clarion call. It's a trumpet call. It's like a bell ringing through a lot of chaos. That's why we're going to look this morning at clarity in the midst of chaos. It could apply. Of course, this thing could apply to the chaos in our own lives. Not, that's going on all the time. But I'm using it today in the context of the clarity of the gospel message in the midst of all the craziness that surrounds us. So let me read from Acts, the last section of Acts 13 from verse 44. We read last week that they were in the uh, synagogue and Paul spoke. He used the style of the Old Testament. He recalled the faithfulness of God to the people of Israel. This is a week later, verse 44 says, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with joy. No, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then, and here's the clarity, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. Speaking to a, a Jewish audience, predominantly the religious leaders of the day, we had to speak the word of God to you first. 
since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This comes from Isaiah. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But, this is one of the negative buts, but the Jews, and whenever, again, whenever you see the word Jews written with a capital J, it's, it's usually referring to the establishment, the religious establishment, the leaders of the day, not the people in general, not the crowds. And don't forget the way that Jesus spoke to the crowds and the way he spoke to the church of the day, very different. When he spoke to the crowds, he had compassion, full of grace. He fed them, he healed them, he touched them, he loved them. But when he spoke to the church, the religious establishment, he usually chastised them because they should have known better. So, verse 50, when the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. They got a red card from the region. Not just off a rugby field. From the region. So they took the dust, they shook rather the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Can you see the difference between those who respond to Christ and those who reject Christ? Can you see the clarity of the gospel message in the midst of the chaos of anger and hatred <clears throat> excuse me, and abuse? That's what we're going to be looking at today. And <clears throat> I would really like to encourage you to see this this message, not just in its broad application, but as we come to the table just now, remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 11. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, speaking to every believer that comes around the table at any point in history, and for us this morning, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. And so we're, as we take, we're not earning brownie points and trying to impress God when, we, when we're sharing the bread and the cup. We are responding to God based on his unmerited, undeserved, infinite love in Christ. We are responding to him and we are committing to be messengers. So as we look at this text this morning and we spend some time in it, I want, to apply, I want us to apply it to each one of our lives. These are truths that we can and must apply to our lives because we are the ones who've been given the word of life. We're the salt, we're the light, we're the body of Christ. So they're general observations on one level, but they have a very specific application to each one of our lives. So, First thing we need to learn and need to apply, and this is really 
homework for each one of us is to construct a clear strategy for kingdom expansion. This applies to, to my life, to your life. Do you have a strategy? Maybe you've never thought about it in these terms. Do you have a strategy for expanding the kingdom of God by living out the gospel, sharing the gospel, gossiping the gospel, serving other people, creating opportunities for relationship and for sharing? Have you got a mission statement for your own life? We have one for the church. Remember, if I bump into you in Cresta, I'm going to ask you what it is. I have such peaceful time. Nobody greets me in Cresta. Nobody comes and says hello. I don't know why. But our mission statement, our purpose statement, is celebrating community with Jesus Christ, celebrating community with each other, and celebrating community with our world. Another way we could describe that is, and every church mission statement, and the mission statement of every single believer should have these three components. Worship, celebrating community with Jesus, And if we celebrate community with Jesus, we're celebrating community with the Father and the Son. So that's community. That's worship. Celebrating community with each other. That's all of us in Christ. We worship, we serve, we we celebrate the Lord in our community of faith. That's fellowship. And celebrating community with our world That's witness, isn't it? That's discipleship. That's taking relationship with Jesus and relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ and living that out in our sphere of influence. My voice is going to do that today once in a while. Um, But So you see the three components, worship, fellowship, witness. Come up with your own mission statement. Come up with your own purpose statement. Construct a clear strategy for kingdom expansion. How am I going to go about living out my faith in a deliberate, not not abrasive, not offensive, but in a deliberate, intentional, authentic, humble way? How am I going to do that? How are you going to do that? It's all of us included that need to share Jesus and live him out. You'll see Paul's strategy... Very clearly, on the next Sabbath, verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Why did they do that? Because a week before, he had preached the gospel in a very convincing way. And even Dr. Luke, who's not given to exaggeration. You know, some Christians have the, let's just put it this way, sort of the spiritual gift of hyperbole, you know, of exaggeration. And sometimes I joke with some of them and I say, I've told you a million times not to exaggerate. Because we we sometimes get carried away. But Dr. Luke's normally very accurate, very factual. And so he says, almost the whole city. This is a massive crowd of people who gather to hear the word of the Lord because of the faithful preaching of God's word and the witness of those who heard it. Remember, they didn't have social media. They didn't have news papers. They didn't have um, telephones or anything. So it was word of mouth that the word spread through that week between the Sabbath days. And so people gathered. They were there. They wanted to hear. 
They didn't want to miss out because what had been spoken of in the previous, on the previous Lord's Day was so convincing and so authentic, they couldn't help themselves. They wanted to find out what was going on. How often and how effectively do we gossip the gospel as believers? Paul, as I said, had a very, very clear strategy. He would focus predominantly on cities, not because he didn't care about the Platteland or people outside of that, but a city is a hub. Many people come together. It's very cosmopolitan. Any city in the world, people from all languages and nations and ethnic groups, and they, they travel through and they go back. So if they hear the gospel in the city, they will take it home with them. And that's what happened in the first century. It spread like wildfire. So Paul would focus on cities. And there were two main areas in the city that he would focus on. So he focused on cities. And within the city, two main areas. The marketplace, where the, where the Gentiles were predominantly. And the synagogue, where the Jews were in the other order, synagogues and then marketplaces, but that was a strategy, had a clear strategy. And as you read through Acts, from now to the end of Acts, we're going to learn a lot about Paul. That was a strategy. What is my strategy? What is your strategy for spreading the gospel? Do you have a strategy? Do you belong to a sports club? A bonsai? Anybody? Stamps? Baking? Cooking? Quilting? Stargazing? Looking for Bigfoot. Yeah, I'm just, just making just examples. So where, what is our, do we belong to these organizations? How about the street group? Most of us have a WhatsApp group on our phones. We got two for our street, one's for emergencies, one's for social. Sometimes I can't tell the difference. But they're busy all the time. So there are ways for us to reach out to people. But notice, too, what the response is, or reaction, verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas got completely flustered. They gave up. They said, we're not going to do this anymore. We've tried. we failed. Is that what they said? No, they stuck to the strategy. We had to speak the word of God to you first. But since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And to back that up, he quotes the Old Testament. This is not a new concept. This is not a New Testament thing. I remember speaking to a lady at a, at a, at a church function. I won't name the denomination. I won't name the area. Because you people, you're so curious, eh? You're, you're terrible. Anyway, I was speaking to this lady. And she just asked me what I do. So I was telling her, and I started sharing with her the point, the point of the Great Commission and making disciples of all nations and how excited we are about that. We were at our previous church at that stage. And after I've been talking for a while, she said to me, is this a new thing at your church? Is this a new idea? No, ma'am, this is thousands of years old. As a matter of fact, it started in the Old Testament. There's nothing new about this. 
I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See, when we have a strategy, when we have a clear plan, we can face opposition, we can face challenges, we can face disappointments. Because we, what do all the rugby teams say? You know, it is so, I don't like watching interviews of coaches and players, whether they win or lose, because it's always the same. We've got to stick to our structures. We go back to the drawing board. You know, we've gathered, and then they butcher English, we've gathered a lot of learnings out of this game. There's no such word in the English language, in any dialect. There's no such word as learnings. If you insist. In defense of our brothers in arms. But they have it. The point is they have a clear strategy, don't they? And if they stick to the structures, they'll eventually get it right. Do we have a clear structure? And if we have a clear structure, we'll know how to pick our battles. We'll know how to pick our battles. Not every hill is worth dying on. It doesn't really matter, as much as it pains me to say this, whether you support the Springboks or another team. It doesn't really it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter whether you're driving a Suzu or a Ford. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter whether I have a Land Rover or a Land Cruiser. It really doesn't matter. I'm just picking on guys because this is the stuff they fight about all the time. Pick your battles. And especially when it comes to the gospel. Know when to take your stand and know when to stand back. How's the song go? You've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay? So pick your battles. They're not all equal. And also realize, as we live for Christ, that people mock what they don't understand. People mock what they don't understand. It happens all the time. When people mock your belief system, maybe you're a wife or a husband with an unsaved partner, and that partner mocks your faith. Maybe you're a child, a young adult, whatever category. Maybe in your work, in your office, people mock you for being a Christian. People mock what they don't understand. So don't be offended by that. Just stick to the plan. Stick to the strategy. Be faithful to the Lord. We had to speak the word of God to you first. But since you reject it, and notice how the weight, the onus is put on those who criticize here. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And Paul in Romans 9 to 11 explains a lot about that, about how it's God's purpose through turning to the Gentiles that the Jewish nation becomes jealous. You know what I discovered when my boys were small? The best, the most favorite toy, the most favorite toy in the whole house was the one your brother was playing with. <laughs> it can lie there for days. It can lie there for days. It can lie outside in the sun, in the rain. Pick up your toys, put them away. It can lie outside. But the moment your brother picks it up, that's the one you want. So in reaching out to the Gentiles, God's love for the Gentiles is just as great as for the Jews. But the point is, to make, create this jealousy. And we see it right here. 
we see it in the text. But don't be overwhelmed or disappointed. People mock what they don't understand. When people mock you, berate you, they're just telling you they don't understand you. It's okay. It's okay. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, I love the priority here, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. That's, that's lordship, that's kingdom language. Jesus is Lord, he's my king. In your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect. So people, these are the two sub-points, people mock what they don't understand. Second sub-point here, people react against what threatens their insecurity. This, these are tried and tested. I see it all the time. I'm sure you've seen it all the time. People react against what threatens their insecurity. There's deliberate opposition to the gospel because the Jews, capital J, the religious leaders of the day, knew that if this thing caught on, they would lose their following. They'd lose their power. They'd lose their control. Every dictator lives with this fear with this insecurity, I'm going to lose control. That's why what we see in the persecuted church as we pray for Qatar, dictators hate Christianity because you can't control Christianity. And it's more than just trying to control Christians. How can you control the Holy Spirit? Remember what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John 3? The pneuma, the wind, using a play on words because the word for wind and spirit, both, by the way, both in Greek and Hebrew is same, wind and spirit. Ruach in the Hebrew, wind and spirit. Pneuma in the Greek, wind and spirit. The wind blows where it wants to. Ta-da. The wind blows where it wants to. You can't see where it's come from or where it's going, but you can see the impact of the wind. And Jesus said, so it is with the spirit. And when the wind blows through your life, when the wind of the Spirit blows through my life, you and I know it. We can try and explain it away, but we know. And that can be scary because we realize that as Christ calls us to follow him, as he calls us to proclaim him, we are abdicating control of our lives, and that's terrifying. The, the joke is that we actually thought we were in control of our lives in the first place. But people react to what threatens their insecurity. Now, speaking of the Holy Spirit, we see the incredible work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and in the first century AD because that is a consequence. The way that the gospel spread, particularly in the first century AD, that's where we are in the book of Acts, is because of the millennia of preparation that we read about in the Old Testament. All the prophets, what are they? I will send one like you amongst your brothers. I'll send another one like Moses, the Messiah, 
the, the servant songs we read, Isaiah 53, the lost, the fourth of four servant songs in Isaiah, prophesying 700 years before Jesus who the Messiah, what he would do, and what would happen to him. The thing is, they didn't know who that would be, but they knew that out of the stump of Jesse will come this, this descendant, the son of David, whose throne will reign forever and ever and ever. So all the preparation is here. And so it's like, um, don't try this at home, but you know when, you, when, you, when, you, when you're really good at making fires, um, Bri, so you use a bit of a flammable liquid you know, to assist you, and you throw that on, and then you're fiddling with the match, and you try a couple, and then you get one, and boom, you lose your eyebrows. You, you, some of us had this experience. I can't afford to lose much more hair, so I have to be very careful these days. But it's like that. When, 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 when Christ came, the, the kindling was there, everything was there, the accelerant was there, boom! There's this glorious explosion of the gospel, and thousands of people get saved on the day of Pentecost, and thousands of people are getting saved today, by the way, all around the world. So what happened in Acts 2, and the Lord added to the number daily those who are being saved, that's continuing. That's absolutely continuing. But that's because of this long, as Baker says, this long preparation by the Holy Spirit. And then we see the divine, if you like, the divine side of evangelism in verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. This is speaking of the fact that God calls. Romans 8, many other places, God calls people to himself. And all who are appointed for eternal life are believed. And it's interesting that the word here, appointed, is another military term. There's a lot of military terms in the New Testament. Um, this is a military term. So you know how a guy, guys who've spent done a bit of time in, in the military, we all know what volunteering army style means. The corporal, the sergeant, somebody come and say, I, three, I need three volunteers, you, you, and you. That, that's how volunteering goes in the army. So God calls. He calls people to himself. It's what he does. We can't, why would we want to get away from this in Scripture? But by the same token, there's the human side of evangelism over the spread of the word. Look at verse 46 again. We had to speak the word of God to you, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy... So in the same passage, we've got these two big doctrines, these big teaching. Man's free will and God's choosing. And they fit together in this passage. We should never try to split them apart. It's like trying to create a divorce in God's word. We don't have to understand how this works. But it's here. And it's good news that it's here because salvation belongs to our God. We can't get people saved. We can't... You, see, you know, it's been said, and it's so true, that Islam is the fastest growing enforced religion because when you don't have the Holy Spirit because you're not, you're not living and you're not spreading truth, you have to coerce, you have to intimidate people to join your club, to join your movement, to join your ideology. 
but this is the work of the Spirit, but it doesn't negate the work of God's people. And it doesn't negate the response, the human responsibility that each person has to accept Christ. And as Romans says, chapter 1, mankind is without excuse. So in God's mind, these things fit beautifully together. It's like the best explanation I've ever heard is like two lines. Uh, you know, we used to have the South African railways, you know. <laughs> Well, it's quite a wonderful thing. You could, you could go to a station and buy a ticket from one place to the next, and there was a timetable on the wall, and it would say the train's arriving at this time, and true's nuts had arrived at that time. And if you're late, you're late. And it would get to the next station at the time they said they were going to arrive. It was quite an amazing thing. Some of you guys remember this. People at 10 o'clock won't know what I'm talking about. So you have these railway tracks. And you need both for the train. But they run parallel to each other. You don't ever want those tracks touching. It won't be a good day in your life. If you're on a train and those two tracks at some part are the, you know, somewhere along the line, are touching, it's going to really ruin your day. You don't want them touching. They run in parallel. And it's like these great doctrines in Scripture. God chooses, man chooses. Don't know how to reconcile this. But they run in parallel. And they're both here in the text, so don't argue with me about it. They're both here. The thing is, some of my friends always quote um, verse 48. And some always quote verse 46. Let's quote both. Let's quote both. Man's responsibility, God's choosing, that's the gospel. But everybody is without excuse. So that's how the gospel is presented here in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. And that's how we should, that's how we should represent it. But we're, we are going to often get opposition, sometimes within the church. You know, when William Carey, was it William Carey? I can never remember it was William Carey or Hudson Taylor. The missiologist must help me out. He went to his church. Again, I won't mention the denomination. He went to his church and he told them about his burden to reach, I think it was William Carey, he went to India. Yeah, I think so. So he went to his church leaders and he told them about his burden to um, go to India and to make disciples. And one of the leaders said to him, young man, sit down. If God wants to reach the, reach the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. Is that what the Bible says? <laughs> I'm so glad William Carey didn't listen to that man. Became one of the greatest missionaries. Actually the father of modern missions. So the strategy is very important. So let me ask you again. How, what is your mission field? Have you identified it? We all have one. And are you strategizing, am I strategizing to reach that mission field? Who are we targeting with the gospel? 
And, and am I praying for those people that are targeted with the gospel? Somebody said, you need to talk to Jesus about your friends before you talk to your friends about Jesus. So, that's all about the, point, the responsibility, the burden, the calling that is on each one of us. Construct a clear strategy for kingdom expansion. But secondly, communicate a clear message. Communicate a clear message of kingdom fulfillment. And we see that this was done because of what verses 49 onwards say. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Did it spread by itself? How did it spread? Word of mouth, yeah, word of mouth. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. And then you get the reaction that Jews incited the God-fearing women of Isaac. So these were, these were Gentiles who were on the, sort of on the border of, becoming, of converting to Judaism. So the religious leaders stirred them up, incited them. And the leading men, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. But look at their response. And this is what Jesus says. It's in Matthew 10 and Luke 10, Luke 9 and 10. They shook the dust from their feet in protest, which in the ancient world was a sign of great disgust. I want nothing to do with you. I don't even want your, your smelly dust on my smelly feet. They did that. And they moved on. But that's in response to the rejection. But look at verse, 50, verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy... And with the Holy Spirit, well, join the Holy Spirit, always go together. How could they be filled with joy in the Holy Spirit when they're rejected? Because they realized that people weren't rejecting them. They were rejecting Jesus. When, you, when people reject you and I, when we, when we share Christ, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting Jesus. This and their, their reaction to this, the shaking off the dust, is an extreme, this is not what I recommend, but this is an extreme situation which this context called for. But the glorious contrast is the kingdom being fulfilled, the gospel spreading, people coming to faith, this joy which some have called the fruit of the gospel. You know, know it? people talk about joy all the time. But a non-believer can't know joy. A non-believer can know happiness. We can know happiness. But happiness is all over the place. Happiness is not all that's you know, cracked up to be. Happiness is haphazard. Same word. Up and down. Roller coaster of emotions and good and bad. Petrol price goes up. Oh, we're unhappy. It's up and down. The box win. We're happy. England beats Argentina, we're unhappy. Or whatever, you know, just, just examples, just examples. But happiness is up and down. But joy is abiding. And it's, it's the fruit of the presence of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit. It's abiding, it, and it's not dependent on circumstances. It's not dependent on what happens outside of us. 
No one can steal our joy because as Nehemiah said, remember when they're building the wall, rebuilding Jerusalem's wall, and they accomplished it in 52 days. What a great case study in leadership and project management. Amazing. What did he say to him? The joy of the Lord will be your strength. May the joy of the Lord be our strength day in and day out. Now I want to as you go to the table, I want to tell you a story I've told you before, um, and that's just an occupational hazard. You hear my stories more than you'd like, but I just think it fits so well here, and some people here haven't heard it, so. On one of our trips to the persecuted church, we found ourselves in a, in a small city uh, you know, a significant city, but not a massive city, that was just inundated with mosques. And in the middle of all these mosques was a monastery. And the monastery has been built long before the mosques came along. That's one of the reasons we think there's so many mosques today, because they're trying to drown out the monastery. So we, the safest place to stay in this area was in the monastery. So what we would do during the call to prayer that blared out, I remember telling how we took our boys once and the uh, amazing trip, God just undertook, pardon me, where we stayed in this monastery and we sat in, facing one of their windows was a speaker this big because there's a minaret right next door. So we told them, the boys were much younger, we said, boys, about 4.30 in the morning, this thing is going to get very loud. Don't panic, we're right next door, we'll, be, we'll come in, we'll be with you. So we woke up with this thing blaring, we're charging into the room with our three boys, and they're all sitting up in bed with their eyes as big as saucers. So we spent time with them, and we prayed, and... Anyway, so we go on the roof of the monastery every time the call to prayer came out. Well, usually the afternoon and evening one. And we would pray over that city that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would fill that place as the waters cover the sea. And it was just before Easter. These trips usually happen like a week or two before Easter. So, so there was, within the Christian community that was in this little enclave, there was a lot of preparation and celebration building up to Easter. So we're standing on the roof uh, and, and we're praying for the salvation of the city and the salvation of the, the imams and the religious leaders. And, uh, but you've got, somebody counted those, from the roof you can see like a hundred minarets so you can imagine the cacophony. And we're up there praying. And it's quite, a, it's quite a thing to experience that. In the middle of that disturbing cacophony, something amazing happened. The bell in the tower of the cathedral started to ring. Just, just one strike every, I don't know, 30 seconds, 40 seconds. 
this beautiful big. You know we have this saying, it's as clear as a, it's as clear as a bell, man. And this solitary bell, the ring of this bell just cut through all that chaos and all that noise and all that confusion. And when I think of that, I get goosebumps on my goosebumps again. Because I'll never forget that experience. Because that's the clarity of the gospel in the midst of chaos. And so we, we should never be overwhelmed with the chaos around us. We are here to ring the bell of the gospel. And it cuts through all the babble. It cuts through all the cackle. It cuts through all the confusion. And it's as simple and as profound as for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have the life of the age, the life of the kingdom. And Paul uses the picture of a bell in 1 Thessalonians 8. He says, your witness has spread through this whole region. He says, the gospel rang out from you. Oh, may the gospel ring out from Norsk of Union for years and years to come. But as we come to the table to share in the bread and the cup, may we take to heart the commitment we're making for whenever we eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup, you are the bell. I'm the bell. You proclaim the clarity of the proclamation. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's prepare for the table, and then we'll share in the bread and the cup together.